Hello and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today my guest is the author and academic Joanna Williams. In this episode, Joanna and I talk about Britain's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We discuss our thoughts on the March lockdown, the ethics of allowing the virus to spread among the non-vulnerable, the shortcomings in the government's stop-go approach, and where the opposition to restrictions has been over the course of the crisis. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you've been a very important critic of the lockdown and some of the draconian measures taken that are associated with it. Uh, so I thought what we'd do is, is take a chronological look at government policy from the start and just go through it and see what we think. So first question, what was your reaction to the original lockdown in March? So in a way it was split. I mean, I was very critical of things like schools closing. You could see which way the wind was going. And um, in the couple of weeks leading up to lockdown, lots of teachers seem to be taking to Twitter and there seemed to be growing momentum behind a campaign to get schools closed and I actually um, wrote against schools closing before they even did before lockdown started so, so I, I, that was that was my general view um, but having said that I guess I could see also some rationale towards it if we put ourselves back in time to what it was like in March. We did have daily press briefings giving us the death statistics. We had news reports showing what was coming out of Italy uh, and Spain. And the situation did look quite grim. So although I was instinctively against lockdown and certainly against schools closing, at the same time, I could see some rationale as to why this was happening. And um, I guess that that did frame certainly my own personal behavior. Yeah, I think we were in a very similar position, actually. I think we deliberately didn't, as a party, did not criticize the government's action in, in March uh, and April. Although I, I mean, I think partly because sort of to paraphrase more on, you know, on free will, could you have done otherwise? Could they have done otherwise? And I, I actually don't think any government facing the situation that it faced could have done otherwise. I mean, in particular, um, a government where Nerve Tag, it's two, it's two committees, Nerve Tag and Sage, both said lockdown with the figures that Ferguson produced. I actually don't think they could have done any, any different. I think we have to also remember what the motivation was for that initial lockdown. So we were told it would be time limited. We were told three weeks. Um, and we were given a very specific motivation that, that we had to be careful that the NHS didn't become overwhelmed and was unable to cope with the number of uh, people going into hospital. And again, that time limitedness, I think, gave us a bit of, of steel, if you like, in preparation for lockdown. You, you grit your teeth and you think we can do this for three weeks. It makes sense to not want to overwhelm the NHS. And it, it seemed even if even if we had personal objections to it on a the level of society, it seemed like a fairly rational response to to buckle down and do this for three weeks. And of course, as we know, it then didn't become just three weeks. Seven weeks, yeah. 
Um, and that was curious. I mean, I, I, I was very concerned, as I say, partly out of sort of national unity. And there was a great deal of national unity early on, wasn't there? Um, I, I deliberately didn't criticize the government, but I did write a piece for SDP Talk, which was between the lines, anyone reading that piece would see that I was fairly skeptical. And I was skeptical about one thing in particular. I think the government didn't attempt to measure or quantify the costs of the lockdown, the human costs. I wasn't just talking about financial costs, which are considerable and are running into several hundreds of billions now, which also have a human cost. But I actually doubted whether the lockdown would save a single life, actually, really, uh, in, in net terms. Um, so I put that piece out, and that was the start of our uh, lockdown scepticism as a party, I think. You see, around the same time then, probably um, maybe about three weeks into lockdown, into the first lockdown, I wrote a piece for the Telegraph, which really argued the case for schools reopening fully to all children as soon as possible. Um, it certainly seemed to me a very, even at that stage, a very draconian measure and a very out of proportion measure. Um, even the early data was telling us that children were very little, had very little, this virus had very little impact upon children. Um, and the atmosphere at that time, at the end of March, was so incredibly polarized and hostile to anyone who dared to question this. It really took me aback, and I'm no novice to controversy in these areas, let's say. So we'd come out of four years of very um, bitter and hostile Brexit debate where to, um, for me at the time I, of the referendum, I was in academia and to argue a pro-leave position really um, held you up to an awful lot of hostility. And yet to argue against lockdown in those early stages, that was a complete whole different order of moral outrage that um, would be unleashed against you. Uh, it really took me by surprise. And anybody who questioned it, the immediate um, conclusion seemed, or the accusation thrown against you was basically that you wanted to kill all old people, um, that you didn't care at all for human life, that you were quite happy to unleash some kind of terrible survival of the fittest philosophy, which couldn't be further from my view um but but that was the the very bitter environment at the time it was a strange environment and actually the the number of skeptics that were you know prepared to speak out publicly was very small indeed we interviewed peter hitchens but actually a few a couple of months ago but i i kept off lockdown because he was so well published on that but uh speaking to him privately he i put the point to him that the government couldn't have done anything else because of the two committees and he said well of course it depends who was on the committee which i thought was a brilliant point i mean actually to be fair if gupta and hennigan and a few others bhopal and others from other universities formed the committee then perhaps the policy would have been different um let's talk about the schools because you've concentrated on that and i've read your pieces on spikes and other places about it and i think it's really interesting we we seem to have not taken a humane or protective response to our children here and and like in so many other ways we burden children now that's what we do we don't shield them and and, and protect them and give them sort of guardrails what we do is we subject them to the full force of whatever's happening and we've done it again on this and i think you were bang on the schools should never have been closed what we should have done possibly 
is kept them open and taken a more sort of protective attitude do you think that's obviously right yeah absolutely and i really like the way you put it in terms of our children i think that's really important um obviously i had a particular interest in my own child but i really see uh, schooling as being the institution where we enact an intergenerational responsibility to children in the collective um we have a responsibility to educate children to look after children and to help children survive in society and, and bring children into the adult world in a uh, controlled and um, carefully managed way. And I think the way schools closed on mass was, uh, to me, it, it was just a real abdication of that responsibility. It was almost as if collectively adults were washing their hands of children and uh, for the first time really pushing all responsibility for children onto individual parents and and families and again you know this is not written down or formally stated but to me as a parent when you have children it feels as if you're entering almost into a social contract so i i have three children and i had each of those children being aware that I was bringing them up into a world where there were nurseries and schools and breakfast clubs and after school clubs and friends and neighbours and extended family members. I never had children thinking um, these children will be the sole responsibility of myself and my husband. Um, and it just seemed as if that contract, if you like, that social contract with which we care for the next generation collectively completely went out of the window. Yeah, I don't think, as I say, I think you're right about that. And I think um, what we've gotten is the protective role. I think if you look at the, everyone was you know, talking about the Swedish model, but the Swedes realized from the start that you can't actually close schools without that affecting the whole of the rest of society because parents go to work and there are single parents and so on that will be affected by this. So they've trade, uh, their approach seems to be very, very communitarian, very protective, uh, try and keep calm and carry on. You know, you haven't got children in masks. I mean, what's been interesting here is that the, there's been no political opposition to any of these things that the government's done. And I want to talk to you a bit later about that. But we've relied on community groups like, you know, Us For Them, for instance, and their petition, which again, I support. I think broadly they've they're bang on you know we haven't been protective enough but it shouldn't really fall to community groups should it really uh, no it shouldn't and i think it's even worse than you say because not only have we not been protective towards children it seems that towards children and young people more broadly worse than not being protective it's almost as if we've been happy or, or when i say we i mean um particular government ministers especially have been happy to blame young people and put the burden on young people as if they are somehow the cause of what's gone on. Um, so the particular message to older teenagers of don't kill your granny, I think is really morally reprehensible because it suggests that young people put behaving recklessly and, and just their own pleasure and enjoyment above the lives of their grandparents. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. It seems to me uh, lots of young people take strength and, and love um, from their extended families. 
and it seems like but but they still are young people you know they behave as children and young people do which is is exactly as it should be and exactly what's expected but then to be berated for doing that to be blamed as virus spreaders and I, I think this really became obvious to me when you saw some of the things that were statements that were coming from Mary Bowstead the head of the National Education Union where I think this was probably about April beginning of May time where she was talking quite seriously about proposals to disinfect children um, at the school gates and you just as a metaphor for the way children are seen as dirty uh, infected I just said this is just really really horrible well I, I totally agree with you Jan I, I, I think the rhetoric is completely wrong but I actually I think it goes it's worse than that I think possibly even the, um, the rationale is wrong so if you move ahead to sort of university age uh, kids you know uh, young adults um, the don't don't kill your granny narrative and criticizing people for wanting to meet and and uh, and enjoy their lives. I think the whole policy is wrong, actually. And if you do a little bit of thinking about it, there's a very very good case, a rational case, for allowing students to get on with their lives in universities as normal, because the the risk to them is quite minimal, um, and to allow the uh, virus to pass through naturally the university population and I would ask a, I, just a contrary to the to the government stop go panicking and haphazard policy I would ask you would we be in a better place if the virus pa passed through most universities naturally throughout throughout the first term and a half and we get to you know March and April next year where we've got a lot of uh, population immunity in the student population personally I think that's the more rational approach. Do you, what do you think? Absolutely, I agree with you 100%. And this is a subject very close to my heart. I have my two eldest children are at university. Um, my middle son, I dropped off at Glasgow University about three, four weeks ago now. And he's been in a semi-permanent state of lockdown in his hordes of residence ever since. Um, online learning, police and security guards can, uh, patrolling outside his hall of residence. And um, he put it to me that it was completely the wrong way around, that young people were being effectively locked up, um, particularly in Scotland, um, told they couldn't even meet, uh, go to the pub even with people from their same household. Um, they were being locked up, presumably, so that people over the age of 60 and 70 who were more at risk could go to the pub and um, mix with people in public and it does it it seems absolutely ludicrous it seems yeah i mean there's been a lot of contradictions in government policy um that's one of them yes to where they're currently shielding the uh healthy and the unlikely to be ill and allowing uh perhaps not shielding the, the genuinely vulnerable to the extent they should um i mean and it, i'm not it's very difficult because as i said i didn't criticize the government early on very much but i genuinely think they're, they're, they're missing the costs of the aggregate costs of what they're doing and uh, haphazard policy, um, stop go policy doesn't work anyway because the public don't know where they are. I mean, to go from, we've missed the summer out actually, Joanna, where um, we went from, you know, seven week lockdown, full draconian lockdown, the like of which people our age would not have ever understood that it could be the case. I remember when Wuhan was being 
lockdown, uh, and, you know, and we found that out in the, early, the first two months of this year, you thought, well, it could never happen here. And yet it did. And it shows you how fragile liberty is, even in a place like Britain with very high embedded rights, they're removed very, very quickly if we're not careful. Uh, but the co contradictory nature is, is astounded me. So we go from full lockdown to go where they're, they're literally bribing the public um, to go to eat out at restaurants. What did you make of that policy in the summer? Well, I'd be lying if I said I didn't take advantage of it personally. Um, I certainly did lots of eating out to helping out. But I, I completely, I think you're absolutely right again on the whole stop start nature of this and the confusing messages and we don't know what we're supposed to be doing from one moment to the next. I think even worse than the eat out help out has been the go to work, don't go to work message that changed within the space of a week, obviously only for people who have the luxury to be office based workers who, who have the privilege, if you like, of being able to work from home. Um, but yeah, those those messages have been completely contradictory. And um, it's it, it, it does, it just seems totally pointless. But I think on the point you're making about lockdown being completely unprecedented, I'd be, obviously we can't tell yet, but I, I do wonder sometimes what the psychological impact of this is going to be on the nation and the population as a whole, because um, it does seem like, again, in relation to schools, but in relation to life more broadly, everything that we took for granted for decades for our entire lives, the freedom to walk outside of our own front door as many times a day as we want to, um, the freedom to be able to get on a bus, to go somewhere, to get on a train, to travel, to, to go and sit in a friend's house and have a cup of coffee, you know, these are not huge liberties that I'm talking about, but just small everyday freedoms that we completely take for granted. When all of those went, it's like having a rug pulled from underneath your feet. And I think it creates a kind of national insecurity where you think if the government can do this once, you know, what can, why, why can't we, we can't take these things for granted again? Um, it makes you question everything. I agree also. I think one of the things that it did early on was remove um, a free society, a truly free people has realize that they you enjoy a sort of ambiguity with rules i mean I, i'm not in favor of people breaking rules for the hell of it or anything but you you put a piece on spiked about the rise in domestic violence this was obviously you know certainly in reports uh, and helplines and so on this was happening and you made the point that actually the person taking the second walk in a day might be necessary and, we, and as a society, we might have to accept the fact that a little bit of tolerance here and there. I mean, I, I really dislike the snooping thing. I think that's the worst. It brings out the worst in people. Um, and uh, you, for society to function, you've got to allow people to make their own decisions. I think you're absolutely right. And I guess I've always been a fairly, well, very <laughs> law-abiding person and... Um, certainly not somebody who's advocated breaking the law, but I think another thing that's really um, bad about the current situation that we find ourselves in is I think it actually makes liars and lawbreakers of all of us because in order to survive, in order to live, we have to um, we have to find ways to work around the law and particularly around the ever-changing nature of the law. And I, 
can honestly say hand on heart, everybody who I know broke those lockdown rules in one way or another, whether it was going for a walk in the park with a friend when it was the main lockdown period, whether it was inviting a friend into your garden to sit and have a cup of coffee with, um, again, when we weren't supposed to do that. But I think people were, everybody I know was, was incredibly sensible, um, very cautious, but at the same time, you do what you need to do in order to survive and stay sane. And yet you end up then entering into this peculiar relationship with the law and the rules where you, you end up becoming a, a lawbreaker, even if that's not how, and how you want to live your life. It's been so difficult anyway. I mean, it just the constant change of the rules, as you know, where we speak, I'm speaking from the Northeast in Northumberland, we, we're under, you know, semi-lockdown now. I can't uh, go to a friend's house for a cup of tea. Um, and I, I chair a community council up here and we, I've, I'm constantly on to the council clerk to, to say, what's, what's, what's the situation now? Because, <laughs> you, you know, we have, we have, you know, play parks and facilities and parish hall and, you know, and libraries and things which we, and, and toilets, which we've had to, my attitude all along has been to open up as quickly as we're allowed to under the rules, but it's genuinely been difficult for us to negotiate it. And we, we're advised by the government anyway, but it changes so often, it's been very difficult. Can I just move on? One thing that's intrigued me from the start is, and has worried me, is that the sense I've got, and I think, I think I'm right, that the government, we, we, we know we live in a political world, we're not, we're not daft, but the, I think a lot of policy's been uh, governed driven by political salience rather than science. So we're saying, you know, follow the science. Well, a new disease, you can't be an expert in a new disease for a start. And the, and the virologists and the others uh, disagreed anyway. But take masks, for instance. You know, there's about 30 years of evidence on masks that, which are fairly skeptical about their efficacy. Uh, and the WHO were, were not keen on masks, uh, you know, until sort of February, March. Government wasn't very keen on masks. And then suddenly, when we get to the summer, then it's, we've got to wear masks. And I'll just put it to you. My theory on this is that they know that the efficacy isn't much, but they just felt we're going to get hammered by the press if we don't do this. What, what do you make of that? I think you're right, but I think there's also possibly a little bit more to it as well. So um, masks came in, if I remember rightly, around the same time that shops began to open. And I think somebody in government um, seemed to come up with the idea that if we all wore masks, it would create a feeling of safety and reassurance and make people feel more comfortable going out into shops. So even if this didn't have a huge medical benefit in terms of suppressing the virus, it would serve a psychological purpose, either in making us more careful and have a constant reminder on our faces of the need to be careful, and at the same time act as a, a reassurance to people who um, are, are nervous about going out. But I think in that and in so many other ways, what the past couple of months have really shown to me is just how utterly useless and out of touch the government are at reading public opinion because going to the shops and seeing everyone wearing masks is not remotely reassuring it has completely the opposite impact it makes you nervous 
and it turns shopping into the most um, horrible experience where you run in, grab what you want, or I do anyway, and run back out again in order to be able to breathe once more. Joanna, for me, shopping always has been the most horrible experience. So I'm not, yeah. But no, I agree with you. When you see the clips of Stockholm and you see people, um, you know, business as usual, in inverted commas, uh, that certainly is a, it's a less fear-based, panic-based approach. And I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's strange. I just, I just think that a lot of it is so obviously geared to what Robert Peston or some BBC person will ask them at a press conference. They'll say, well, you should, you know, you should, had you done this, then, and, and you can see it. Um, I mean, I, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not a utopian. I know we live in a, a political world, but it's quite obvious to me that that's happened. Another thing that's really interesting, and I, I, I wrote a piece for um, a con woman the other day about the lack of opposition. So this is really intriguing. So at every stage, literally every stage, the government announces a, a measure, and then uh, Starmer and the, all, well, all three of them, the SNP, the Lib Dems, such as they exist, uh, you know, and, and the Labour Party, try and just gold plate it a little bit. So they'll, they'll say, okay, well, you're going to do this, but you're not doing enough. So it's actually been the opposite. The plus V, minus V of what they've done has been amplified by the, by the uh, opposition. So we haven't really had an opposition. Why? Why is that the case? It's it's bizarre to me. No, I think you're right. And I think that's the tragedy. And it's really why we um, find ourselves where we are today. I mean, I, I don't know is the easy answer as to why this is. I think there are probably lots of explanations. But I think one thing that strikes me is right from the very, very beginning, um, the narrative was set again, I think we've already touched upon that, if you in any way challenged what the government was doing, then you were uh, right-wing, ruthless, um, individualistic, uh, horrible person who, uh, and the, the kind of killer argument was that you were putting money, essentially, you were putting the economy over lives, and if you were a nice person, you wouldn't do that. If you were a good person, you'd want to save lives rather than worrying about the economy and rather than worrying about individual liberty. Now, I, I think that narrative was put so firmly in place, um, but I think it's, it's so false and so damaging. Um, I think it's completely untrue that polarization between economy on the one hand and saving lives on the other hand. I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. Lots of people have, have said it before, but it, it's a completely false polarity. Um, we actually need an economy um, to keep people in work, uh, not to provide a living for people. That's essential for people's mental health. It's actually essential for people's physical health to have enough money to pay for food for their families and to heat their houses and not to go to bed at night worrying about keeping the roof over their heads. We need taxpayers to put money into the NHS to save hospitals, to fund cancer treatments. Um, all of these things are cyclical. But, but to me as well, I, I think the um, anti-lockdown people were caricatured as being horrible individualists as opposed to the kind of nice communitarian minded um, pro lockdown people. And again, I think that's an entirely false, really horribly false position because 
it seems to me like it's very easy to be pro-lockdown if you have a lovely house, <laughs> you can afford regular food deliveries, you have a, an office area in your house to make working from home uh, nice and easy, you have the luxury of a, a parent who doesn't work perhaps, who's able to look after the children during the day. Um, all of those things I think make lockdown, made lockdown a very, very individualized experience and to argue for more lockdown is to argue for that individualistic we want to retreat into our own houses essentially we don't want to be part of a broader community looking to tackle this problem together we want to go into our own house maybe we'll come out for five minutes on a thursday evening and bang a saucepan to show solidarity for the nhs but we want to order our own food delivery we want to look after our own children and we want to stay inside our own house um, but I think that that mischaracterization of lockdown skeptics as these cruel individualists who thought only about money and about their own personal freedoms, um, I think really put paid to any opposition. Yeah, I think that's I, you put that really well. And, and perhaps we can investigate this a little bit further, because, he's, as you say, it was characterized as a sort of libertarian thing. I mean, the SDP is not a famously libertarian party um, where we're liberal but we're not liberals and our objection to it was was firmly communitarian uh, because um to me the lockdown as i say we've been through that but it was probably necessary at the time i can see why they did it but it delayed it doesn't didn't solve the pandemic that's the first thing the real error that's been made and this will come out one day the real error they've made is that they failed to properly account for the costs, human costs, and there are financial costs, which would be human costs anyway, the human costs of the lockdown. They failed to calculate that other side of the balance sheet or the cost benefit, if you like. They've just completely failed to do that. They failed to account for it and they failed to take responsibility for it. So they're not, um, they're literally blind to all of the other consequences of what they're doing, trundling on, focusing on this single issue um and i don't think that's very communitarian and i'm absolutely convinced that the lockdown itself the net effect will probably be saving no lives at all probably cost lives and this is the killer uh fact and it's going to cost the country about a trillion pounds which will have a, an effect on a ge whole generation of people so i think in the history of mega mistakes in government we're witnessing one very, we're the only party that stood up against it pretty much, although we're very small. And it's, it's truly bizarre, but you, intellectually, I won't have, I mean, the, the, the libertarian case for individual freedom is very strong and very important, but it's, it wasn't the prime reason we objected to. No, and I mean, it's precisely, it was your, um, the SDP statement in relation to lockdown that made me um, sign up and become a member of the SDP. Uh, and I share lots of your concerns. I actually think lockdown has ripped the heart out of communities up and down the country. And just to come back to what we were talking about a few moments ago in relation to masks in shops, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I, you and I can both laugh and um, perhaps say that we, um, you know, didn't really enjoy shopping that much anyway. But for some people, um, thinking particularly perhaps older women who live alone, actually those conversations and smiling at people in shops might be one of the few forms of social interaction 
that they have with other people each day. Um, the same with pubs. You know, I could, we could each, everybody could come up with various things that they don't really do very much themselves and think, oh, well, that's all right. But again, perhaps for people who live alone, the local pub might be the one place where you go and you're actually meeting with other people. And, and it might be, you know, the only conversation that you're having, it's your link to people who live near you, your link into society, your link with the community. Now, I think we're already seeing up and down Britain, um, pubs and shops closing. And we can uh, put a price on that. We can put a price on it in terms of the job losses, in terms of the revenue not generated. Um, but I think above and beyond those things, the social cost, um, the loss to the community of, of jobs and of, of pubs and shops closing, again, just puts us all back into our homes on our own. Yes, we can order our shopping online. Yes, I can go to a supermarket and buy some beer if I want some beer. But actually, the site of social interaction that takes place within shops and pubs and cafes and on street corners, we're losing all of that. And that's tragic for the fabric of society. It is. It's vital. I mean, you know, these are the consequences. When, when it started, we set up just here as a community, um, a volunteer network, which, which myself and a few other people organized. And we ran prescriptions and because a lot of people that were older needed, couldn't get out, actually. Um, and the ones that I was running and helping, quite a few people were saying, look, where do I go from here? You know, I can't, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 80. I haven't got maybe many years left. And we face this and, and I'm locked here and you, you're running these prescriptions for me. But it's a terrible situation. I mean, uh, you know, I think you, you we're forgetting a lot of, of things. And I think that's been the, the major uh, criticism. And I think it will come out. Uh, I don't think it's going to be easy for government to admit the mistakes, partly because the, the mistakes have been made collectively across the Western world, particularly. But uh, we'll see. To finish, I wonder whether we could try. <laughs> try and, and see some silver linings in what has been an appalling situation. Are there any that you can see? Well, I think exactly what you just described in terms of um, people getting together, particularly in the very, very early stages of lockdown. So suddenly I was shopping for my next door neighbor and ended up speaking to my, my next door neighbor who fell into one of the vulnerable categories over the garden fence. Uh, probably more in the past two years than I have done, no, past two months, sorry, um, than I had done in the previous 10 years, I'm embarrassed to admit. And that sense of communities pulling together and rallying around, shopping for people, um, picking up prescriptions for people. I think that was um, a, a really nice thing that happened. Um, my, my worry is that the government, it's almost, I, I wouldn't say intentionally, but but it's almost as if we've been told now not to do those things it almost feels like or or this is this has gone on for so long or, or particularly i'm thinking of, of places in the north most of my family still are around middlesbrough um, area and yorkshire and this particular ruling about not being able to go into someone's house I think that risks breaking down some of this, some of these positive relationships and new relationships and that kind of generosity of spirit. Uh, I think there's a huge difference between knocking on someone's door and here's your shopping and stopping and having a chat with them and 
putting down the bag of shopping and then running to the other end of the path because you're nervous about being caught with six people or you know interacting with a neighbor when you're not allowed to do so and I think there were some really positive things at first and like I said my, my fear is that the more we get this hyper regulation the more even those positive things become difficult to enact. Yeah I think that's that's well put I think you know in a way it's made people realize when you lose something you know it's like the you don't appreciate the water until the well's dry I think there's a lot of that I think you know certainly I won't uh, take Friday nights in the pub for granted again I, I suppose we did I mean I think there are there are some broader silver linings I'm just trying to finish positively because I think it's important I think for us I think um, the pandemic revealed that indifference to where things are made which is all this sort of trade liberal you know uh, liberalism that you've, you've had 30 years of I think that's been ruthlessly exposed I think it matters where things are made I think we need to get more domestic resilience in that and make a few things here again even if they cost more uh, I think it's brought into focus that some of the stuff that was made in the Far East in a certain large state is pretty close to slave labor in many situations and we shouldn't be indifferent about that and I think um, another silver lining possibly is a reorientation in the universities although it may be a little bit brutal and I'm not I genuinely my wife works at the university here in Newcastle and I you know I I'm not wanting to, to sort of wish ill on to anyone but there is a, a necessary reckoning in the universities I think they've you've had grade inflation as you've written about grade inflation you know kids not getting good contact hours and so on I think maybe there's a reckoning and maybe we get less university and more vocational and training which I think in five years time will be the case and I think that's possibly a silver lining just finally the, the other one I think is that uh, I mean it's been necessary to reorientate sort of culturally what we're about and I think the realization that it's not all about money is something that younger people are sort of facing very sharply now and I think maybe I'm hoping that some of them will start families <laughs> and you know just reorientate their lives to, to other things you know I mean I know David Goodhart's got the new book about um, uh, you know, vocation and, and and so on. I think that may be a positive thing. So I think maybe there will be some positive things, and I hope so. Uh, but you know, do you agree? I think one thing that's true, been true throughout the past few months, is that a lot of problems that were already underlying um, our society have been exposed and made very starkly apparent in such a way that might make them more difficult to ignore. Um, so for me, I guess housing would be one particular um, issue around that. Um, I think all the uh, Zoom calling, uh, I was speaking to somebody the other day who works for um, a, a multinational accountancy firm, and um, they were telling me that what's very obvious is that the kind of managers, the senior managers, when they Zoom in from their very, very large houses, their huge conservatories overlooking uh, with kind of garden-like fields in the background compared to the um, not even junior members of staff but just the regular members of staff who are either sat in bedrooms or in very very cramped offices 
the the problems that we have with with things like housing with an unbalanced economy have been made very starkly apparent it seems to me over the past few months and if we can go anyway to trying to solve those problems i think that would be good I'm t i totally agree with you it's a major i mean it's been a preoccupation uh, people <laughs> accuse me of going on about two things in particular railway nationalization and, and the need to build some social housing on a decent scale and the state has to get back in into this um, unfortunately the current proposals the tories have are predictable market-based nonsense uh, you just have to do some heavy lifting if you want to build some housing, I'm afraid. And you also have to look at immigration as well. Uh, two things they won't do, unfortunately, but I, I certainly agree with you. Listen, right, uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'd just like to thank you for joining the party. It made, meant a lot to us when we heard about it. We never, ever pressurise people, and we, I just don't think you can do that, but, you know, it's wonderful to get um, someone like you to join. It's fantastic. Um, thanks very much. I know you have a school run to do, and I have a whip it to, I have a whip it to walk. <laughs> thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, and take care, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at stp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.